like start looking forward, start investing dollars and think about the injuries that future U.S. forces service members may face, whether that's it's from hypersonic weapons or directed energy weapons, because that's what future military medicine doctors and, and, and nurses will have to be dealing with. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Retired Navy Rear Admiral Colin Shin, a board-certified gastroenterologist, served as a joint staff surgeon. In this episode, Dr. Chin describes his pathway in Navy medicine and many clinical and leadership lessons he has learned throughout his distinguished career. He talks about his experiences providing medical support for Marine Corps units and how Navy medicine utilizes medicine subspecialists in deployment roles. Dr. Chin describes some of the groundbreaking research in military medicine, as well as the importance of global health engagement. Admiral Chin talks about the role of the Joint Staff Surgeon and what it's like providing expert and timely medical advice to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense. You can find out more about Dr. Chin and previous guests on our website, wordoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Rear Admiral, Dr. Colin Chin to Wardox. Colin, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having on with you guys. Admiral Chin, you graduated from Johns Hopkins University in 1979 with a bachelor's degree in public health and stayed there also to receive a master's degree in epidemiology. How did you get connected with Navy medicine? Yeah, a lot of it stems from my family. So my stepfather served with the Marine Corps during World War II and the Korean War. And my oldest brother, Courtney, is a 1975 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. I was very fortunate that my parents paid for tuition, as you mentioned, at the Johns Hopkins as an undergraduate and as a, as a graduate student at the School of Public Health. Interestingly, the cost of tuition back in the 1970s was between three to $5,000 per year, which by today's standards was not a lot of money. But in the 70s, that was quite a significant amount of money. My parents paid for that in full. So when I was thinking about medical school, I wanted to find a way to go but not have my parents spend all the money that they did. So I started thinking about what other avenue scholarship arts are out there and I found the uh, Navy Health Professions Scholarship Program through the HPSP, funded uh, my medical school at the Medical College of Virginia, and absolutely had no regrets for that decision. Obviously, I spent 38 years in the Navy. So after that medical school experience, you did a, a residency training in internal medicine, and then you completed a fellowship in gastroenterology. Now, we may have a few listeners who may not understand exactly what a GI doc Especially, what does a GI doc do in Navy medicine? So, uh, gastroenterology is one of the subspecialties of internal medicine. And a gastroenterologist is a specialist of disease that affects the gastrointestinal system. That's the entire GI tract from the esophagus all the way down to the rectum, as well as the liver. So, what does a gastroenterologist do? In the Navy, essentially what a gastroenterologist does in any, especially medicine, in civilian care. 
Uh, we take care of those, those conditions that people have. Most of the, of the GI doctors in the Navy are assigned to our large medical sectors or our family medicine teaching programs. They do basic inpatient and outpatient GI consultations. Thing that I liked about GI is procedural based. You do endoscopies, upper endoscopies, colonoscopies. You can do liver biopsies. And if you're really good at endoscopies, you can do a procedure called ERCP. The other thing that the gastroenterologists do in the Navy in particular, because they're at our big medical centers and our larger family practice teaching hospitals, they're involved in graduate medical education, in the internal medicine interns and residents as well as teaching the family medicine interns and residents. And if there's a gastroenterology fellowship program, they'll help train our future Navy gastroenterologists. Working real closely with our surgery colleagues, because a lot of, obviously, the, the diseases that a gastroenterologist takes care of is also taken care of by, by general surgeons. So a real good partnership between GI and general surgery. But now, as far as on a deployment perspective, GI docs do deploy. They deployed all through OIF and OEF, not as gastroenterologists, however, but as internal medicine physicians, because before you can do GI training, you have to get trained and certified in internal medicine. So all the Navy gastroenterologists have deployed and basically do the base, basic internal medicine in their deployed status. And use the term that some of our listeners may not be aware of, and that was ERCP. And so for our listeners to know, that's where a gastroenterologist would be able to image the biliary and pancreatic system to make sure that there weren't any blockages along the way. But along those same lines, what was your most memorable clinical case that you had as a Navy gastroenterologist? And did you end up using your gastroenterology skills during a deployment? So I would say probably when I was a GI staff at Naval Medical Center San Diego, and I was probably in the mid-1990s, probably about 1996. I was a lieutenant commander at the time, was the staff gastroenterologist for a couple of years. And I recall doing a screening colonoscopy on the commander of Navy Region Southwest. That's the, he was a line one-star admiral, actually stationed in San Diego, and he just so happened to be the boss of the commander of Naval Medical Center San Diego, and that was Rear Admiral Nelson, two-star. And this was before he became the Surgeon General of the Navy. So you know, I did this screening colonoscopy. Everything went real well, very simple, found one small polyp, did a real easy, not hard to do, a polypectomy. You know, the procedure... Maybe lasted about 30 minutes. We finished. He recovered from his sedation medicines we gave, and he, he went home. I thought everything went, went fine. About 12 hours later, I got a call from him. And he said, hey, doc, I just, I just don't sort of feel well. My abdomen's a little bit bloated. Got, got a little bit of fever. And I said, sir? Why don't you come into the emergency room at, at, at San Diego and I'll meet you down there and see what's going on. So he comes over there and he, you know, he's very stable, just doesn't look right. And we get a CT scan and sure enough, he's got free air in his abdomen. He had a micro perforation of his colon, probably from, the, from that polytectomy that we did. 
So obviously, you know, needed to admit the admiral. Brought him in. Of course, word got out that the Southwest Region commander was being admitted to the hospital. He had to make some phone calls to the chief of naval operation, let him know about that. I suddenly uh, got a call from, from Admiral Nelson. So I sort of let him know what was going on. And I'll tell you, got all sorts of support from the entire staff at, at Balboa. You know, I was sort of a junior GI staff at the hospital. Suddenly, our director for nursing services, a uh, senior Navy captain, She's coming down and saying, Doc, what can I do for you? What can my staff help you take care of your patient? I never got that type of support here in the past, but it was great. I usually gave updates to Admiral Nelson on a daily basis that my patient, the Admiral, was only in for a couple of days. He did fine. We discharged him. And just to help me for his recovery, I ordered some Ensure, just, you know, like a case of Ensure. And I thought he would just like most patients just go down to the pharmacy, pick it up. But when I saw him in follow-up, he said, wow, doc, you must have a lot of pull because uh, that engineer you ordered for me, man, it was delivered right to my quarters on, on, on the naval base. Thank you for, for doing that. I said, well, sir, I don't think it was my pull. Maybe it a little bit had to do with you and your position. So he chuckled. Fast forward now, about 15 years later. I have been selected for promotion to, to one-star rear admiral. It just so happened to be in San Diego, and my former patient is now a retired rear admiral. And I invited him to my promotion ceremony, which he graciously accepted an invite. And I sort of relayed the, in a much shorter form the story I just told, told you. And jokingly, I said, well, sir, I'm glad you're here. And I guess my little misadventure uh, with you didn't uh, hurt my career. So everyone had a good chuckle out of that. So that's probably my most memorable GA, GI case. I would say you asked about, did I use any of my GI skills in, in a deployed environment? I would say I did not, because I actually did not have the, the opportunity to deploy during desert a storm, the shield desert storm. I was a solo internist down at Corpus Christi. I volunteered to go, but because I was the solo internist, they decided not to deploy me. And then during OIF, OEF, I was, again, I definitely would have gone, but I was in my XO tour and CO tours as a, as a hospital commander, and those, those positions didn't deploy. And then I was at Marine Forces Pacific, and then I was a flag officer. Unfortunately, I didn't get that opportunity. But other gastroenterologists, have deployed and have used their, their skills in our, our shore-based expedition medical facilities when needed. So yes, those skills are, are needed. As I said, they did do deploy primarily as interests. So throughout your career, you've had operational assignments with the Marine Corps as the surgeon for the 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion, 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force, and 4th Surgeon. For our listeners, how does a Navy physician get assigned to support the Marine Corps? And are those assignments different from assignments within the Navy? When I did that tour at the recon battalion, that was in the mid-1980s. At that time, pretty much every graduating intern in the Navy, no matter what your specialty of training, did, did what's called a GMO tour, General Medical Officer tour. At the time, I think we had over 650 billets, a lot with the Marine Corps uh, as battalion surgeons, but also a lot with our, our surface ships. 
surface squadrons that may have had doctors, our submarine squadrons, also our flight surgeons or undersea medicine officers. Um, as I said, most interns went there. Most of the people graduating wanted to be on a ship like out of San Diego or Hawaii or, or in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. No one really wanted to do a Marine Corps tour. However, as I told you before, a significant experience in my family with the Marine Corps. So that's what I wanted to do. So I met with the assignments officer. I was training at Naval Hospital Oakland at the time. And he said, so Colin, uh, what do you want to do in your GMO tour? I said, I'll do Marine Corps, battalion surgeon. I'm happy to go over to Okinawa. He was stunned when I said that. He said, you got it. Took him, we always spent 30 seconds with that. So he was very happy to have someone who wanted to do a Marine Corps tour. And how did I get their recon battalion? Third recon is sort of like the Marine Corps, like special forces units, a very sort of specialized, very small battalion, about 300 Marines, everyone volunteers. And the division surgeon at the time, and, and people do recon, have to be physically fit because they do a lot of training. And I was doing triathlons at the time. My body fat was less than 10%. He never, he didn't know me. Just, he just looked at my body fat percentage and said, okay, this guy probably works out. He'll be great with third recon. And so I was assigned there. That was one of the best decisions ever made for me because it was, it was sort of a match made in heaven. I really gravitated to that Marine unit. My commanding officer was outstanding. And I think that tour is one of the reasons why I stayed in so long, 38 years. So you spend eight years as not only doing clinical assignments, but these operational assignments. And at that point, you began having assignments in executive hospital leadership, including the director of medical services, Naval Hospital Okinawa. You're the executive officer of Naval Hospital Limor, and as the 15th commanding officer of Naval Hospital Oak Harbor. How does a medical subspecialist prepare for those assignments? And what did you find were the greatest leadership challenges and lessons you learned as you transitioned from clinical medicine to executive leadership? Uh, you know, executive medicine is, is really open in the Navy, open to anyone in, in Navy medicine. You know, physicians, uh, the nurses, the medical service corps officers, dental corps officers. But for a physician, I would say the vast majority of subspecialists don't pursue uh, executive medicine. I sort of wanted to explore as I went further in my career. And so what do you need to do to prepare for that? I'd say, first of all, prepare yourself to be the best physician that you can be, whatever your specialty is, because that's going to be the basis, foundation of your credibility in, in a leadership position is, first of all, are you, are you a good physician? You take care of your patients. Uh, the other thing I would say is to prepare for those executive medicine positions is be a student of leadership. Really learn about leadership. If there are courses offered, which I think every service does for all their officers, you know, take those courses and then gain some experience in leadership and exercise those skills. So uh, the other thing is learn how the Navy works. A big way to do that is do an operational tour. Obviously, during the time when I did my GMO tour, everyone did that, but those opportunities are becoming fewer. So if you can do an operational tour, I think that helps you learn about operational medicine, learn, learn about how the Navy works, and then also learn how, to, how, how a hospital 
works because you're not going to be able to become a, a commanding officer of a hospital if you don't have that basic knowledge. So get those experience for a physician. There's a lot of different clinical committees that you be a member of. You can uh, take some leadership roles. You'd be the, uh, you'd be the chief of the medical staff or a chair of one of those co- committees. You know, when the joint commission comes around, be part of that process. I think collectively, all those things would prepare you for the experiences and the background for you to not only have the skill sets and experience to do executive medicine, but also be a successful one. One of your executive leadership roles was the director of TRICARE Region West Pacific. What was your role in that position, and how did you help support military medicine and healthcare delivery to all beneficiaries? The role of the TRICARE Region Office, West, the director of TRICARE West, is to have oversight of the managed care support contractor for the TRICARE West region, which is essentially half of the continental U.S., to include Alaska and Hawaii. At the time, the contractor was TriWest Healthcare Alliance. So my responsibility was to oversight of of TriWest. It was a $17 billion contract, and and they were responsible for setting up uh, the TRICARE network, uh, responsible for making sure that the adequacy of that that, that network, making sure there was uh, the right number and variety of specialists in the region, which can be very difficult in remote locations, remote places like Twin and Palms, California. Making sure there's proper access to care and then the quality of care was, was at the highest standards. So that was my job is to over, oversee the TriWest, making sure that they're meeting all of the requirements of the TriCare contract. So that was my job. So how does that all support military medicine. Well, obviously, they're taking care of the beneficiaries that have to go to the network, whether or not they're active duty, uh, reservists, uh, retirees, or their family members. Uh, that's, that's supporting military medicine, obviously. The other thing, and also making sure from, from a you know, skill sustainment or for graduate medical education, especially nowadays, making sure that those high-value cases that are out in the network can come back to the military treatment facility so that our, our docs and nurses can make sure they get all the skills taken care of complicated patients and for our training programs, making sure that they have those teaching cases. The other thing I was responsible for was the uh, ISOS contract, which is the overseas tri- TRICARE contract. It's ISOS out in the Pacific. I tell you, they greatly support our de- deployed operational forces in the Pacific, especially in remote places, we have Marines out down in Australia, and ISOS can help us with care in, in that area or transport patients. So Australia would be one area, and Thailand was another area which we heavily relied on ISOS for patient transport or for actual care in a facility out in the remote areas in, in the Pacific. You had mentioned that there were sometimes the contractor, the TriWest, was required to find and ensure that the right number of specialists, the right number of, of medical providers were there for that patient population. Did you ever find that there were circumstances where there weren't enough of a certain provider in remote locations? And how did they work through that process? I would say TriWest, they did a fantastic job in, in supporting the military 
from the CEO on down to the staff, really dedicated to supporting military medicine. Obviously, in our large, major metropolitan centers like San Antonio or Sacramento area, San Antonio, having network adequacy was not a big problem. But again, in those remote areas of the Air Force, in those remote locations in South Dakota, like I said, in California, supporting the Marine Corps, in 29 Palms, it would be a challenge. And I would bring that up to the CEO of TriWest, and he would get his, his staff on just working to try to fill those gaps. And I would say many times they were able to do it. If not, I would have to work with Again, I was I was in the tri-care system. Then I worked with my colleagues, Navy medicine or Air Force or Army medicine colleagues in the regions to say, okay, what we, can we do as a West region to get the care? Whether or not we're going to transport the patient from a remote location to an area in which there was care, a more major metropolitan area, or okay, we can we get a specialist out there? So that was if the contractor couldn't do it, and like I said, try West bent over backwards to fill the gaps, but if for some reason they couldn't, a lot of it's because you just can't get a civilian specialist to go to one of these remote locations. You just you just can't do it. So we would have to, and the military on the, on the active duty side, would have to do what we could do. And that happened all the time. And yeah, I'd say even today, it's probably still an issue. Well, I guess that explains why sometimes we'll have patients come from these remote locations. I never really understood why someone would be sent all the way from Mississippi to Bamsey, for instance, to get their varicose veins looked at. But that actually explains a lot to me because there probably was a gap in vascular surgery care at those remote locations. You know, with you know the DHJ now having the authority, direction, and control of all the military treatment facilities, and they're using the market management approach. I think in an ideal world, the market manager would have greater flexibility now with them their market to manage the specialists around, so to speak. And when I saw the market manager approach, I said, okay, yeah, we, you can have all three services and their medical specialists be in sync, but also you should include the managed care support contractor network in that same process. So in an ideal world, that's how the market, in my opinion, should really improve the delivery of care in, in the market to fill to fill those gaps. One of the other interesting jobs that you have held is the U.S. Pacific Command Surgeon, and that's responsible for force health protection, medical readiness, global health engagement for that command. And you also were dual-hatted as the medical corps chief. So what kind of responsibilities did you have with both of those positions, and what was your greatest challenge during that time? It was actually an interesting uh, juggling match, you know, being in Hawaii as, as the PACOM surgeon, but also as the chief of the medical corps, and which the Navy Surgeon General and the Deputy Corps Chief was in Washington, D.C., and based on time zones, anywhere from six to five hours of a time difference. When it's uh, noon, in D.C., it's 6 a.m. In, in Hawaii. So then usually the first thing I would do is, and I, and I had a year in, in D.C. as the court chief, so I, a real good friend of mine, Captain Joel Roos, was the deputy court chief. And we sort of figured out 
how we were going to do business. And really, the deputy court chief uh, appropriately does all of the day-to-day core court chief business. But he knew what, what my priorities were, obviously coming down to the Navy Surgeon General, but what my priorities were for the Navy Medical Corps at the time. And we had a battle rhythm where when I would get into my office at 7 a.m. in Hawaii, I would pick up the phone, call Joel and say, hey, hey, what's, what's going on? What's up? What can I do to help? And you need some decisions. And we'd spend maybe the first hour of the day, my day, I'm just going over those things and we just follow it. It wouldn't, wouldn't be every day, but it would be maybe once or twice a week. We'd connect, obviously, if there's anything that was urgent at any time of the day or night that we would connect. But that was our regular battle rhythm. I think it worked pretty well. But Admiral Nathan, who was the, the Navy Surgeon General type, who was also a former Navy uh, Medicine Corps chief, he said, hey, Colin, you're doing a great job, but maybe this time difference thing may not be the best idea for everyone. So I think after my second year, we transitioned over to Admiral Bono and she became the, the core chief. So that was, that was just sort of logistically a big challenge of being the core chief as well as at PACOM. And I would say the two biggest challenges, core chief challenges when I was there was making sure that we maintain the quality graduate medical education training programs in the Navy at the time. It was a period of time when we were having some struggles with the recruiting for Navy medicine, HPSB, or, or those who come out of USU. And there was sort of a cohort of folks who, were, who struggled through their, their medical school, struggled during their time as an intern, folks may have been on probation for maybe up to six months. And so they were out there as GMOs, and then they were applying for graduate medical education. And the, the way the Navy system works, you get a, it, when it comes to GME selection process, you got points for a variety of things. And whoever has the highest number of points in the process would have maybe a higher priority for selection for, for GME, among other, other criteria. So you get, a lot of, you get points for do, obviously doing well. And, and medical school, doing well on your fitness evaluations and, and program evaluations as an intern. And you got extra points for being in the operational arena as a general medical officer. Well, we had these people who were struggling and they academically really could not compete against other people coming, whether or not they're coming straight out of an internship or had been as a GMO for one year and then going back. I mean, just academically, they couldn't compete. So they were in the operational world for two, three, four, maybe even five years. And then they were applying. Some of them would get the highest points. But I would have a program director tell me, says, Admiral, if, I, if we select this person, this person comes to my program, and we would do everything to get them to, or have zero confidence that this person is going to graduate. So I heard that not just once, but multiple times. And I realized we... We probably, these are people we probably shouldn't be training because if you train them and if they do make it through their program, they'll get selected for O4 because in the Navy, there's a 100% selection opportunity for that. And then they would stay in for 20 years and may not be the most productive or, or best skilled physician. So we sort of had to call the herd. That was a hard decision on my part 
to do that. Obviously, I briefed the Surgeon General. He agreed with my decision. And so we just sort of, to make sure we had maintained the quality of our training programs and of our you know, future Navy physicians, that we just had to make that hard decision. So that was, that was my greatest challenge. One of the interesting things about your career is that you've had important roles in the military medical research and development. What areas of medical research are of particular importance to the DOD and Navy medicine? And what were a couple of the most interesting projects that you helped and worked on during your tenure in the research directorates and commands? I spent about two years as the DHAJ-9, that's director for RD, and actually I was dual-handed as the deputy commander of the Army's Medical Research and Material Command up in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And I was very impressed with level of military medical research all services uh, were conducting. Yeah, the whole range of, of research being conducted, starting from basic science all through you know, advanced development. And essentially, the type of research that's being done is anything that enhances you know, force health protection or survivability in a combat or contingency operation in remote and austere environment. So I'm very impressed with, with all this research that was ongoing. I, I would probably say that the most interesting research that was going on, which I, never, I didn't even know about until I got, got the job, the J-9 job, was the significant advances in regenerative medicine that was being conducted by our military medical researchers in conjunction with a lot of regenerative medicine research at the major a- academic centers, I think uh, the University of Pittsburgh uh, in particular, were leading the field in this, regenerating organs or, or looking at a 3D printing technology to take cells and expand them so you can just grow new organs. I mean, it's way out of the box thinking, things that are maybe uh, a decade from now being sort of a routine. And again, a lot of the things in military, things that become routine and in, in civilian world came from military medicine. I think this regenerative medicine work is part of that. So that was, I would say that would be the, probably the most interesting projects that, that I saw. I also saw that we were doing great work on taking care of the casualties and the things we learned and struggled with doing OIF and OIF, work on, on, on TBI or work on trauma care and things like that. However, I did, actually I have got the opportunity at the MHSRS conference, uh, the Military Health Services Research Symposium down in Orlando, Florida. I said to all the researchers, I said, you're doing outstanding work, but I fear that we will repeat what the military, the U.S. military in particular, always does is continue to fight the last war. And are we continuing to fight, from a military medical research perspective, the last war? Are we continuing to send millions of dollars on the injuries from the last conflict and not looking forward what our signature injuries of the next conflict could be? from a peer or near-peer competitor. So while it's still important to do all that work from the injuries from OIF and OEF, but start looking forward, start investing dollars 
to think about the injuries that future U.S. forces service members may face, whether that's it's from hypersonic weapons or directed energy weapons, because that's what future military medicine doctors and, and, and nurses will have to be dealing with. We're going to start started on that now. So I think that was that was well received. I think there are some, some research going towards that, and I'm hoping that we don't do those same mistakes that we've done in the past. You ended your Navy career as the Joint Staff Surgeon, which for our listeners is the Chief Medical Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, providing advice to the Chairman and combatant commanders. Tell us a little bit about that role and what are they looking for in a medical officer that makes them want to choose you? Well, I've had a great career. If you look at my career, you know, I did all five things that one could do as a military physician. I did clinical medicine. I, I did academic medicine. I was doing the research part of it, operational medicine, and then executive medicine. But the job as a joint staff surgeon is probably the most interesting position that I ever had in those 38 years. Just think about it. I was a senior uh, medical advisor to the highest ranking officer in the U.S. military. The person who advises the Secretary of Defense and the President of the U.S. Uh, of the United States on military matters. And so my job was to provide my best medical advice to the chairman on medical issues, the fact that affected of the joint force. I was very fortunate that under General Dunford, that the joint staff surgeon had a seat at his table when he had all of his senior leaders, when he was receiving briefings, or he was back briefing us on his, his most recent meeting with Secretary of Defense and the President. So we would, we would hear from him what the President needed, what the Secretary of Defense needed, or what he's thinking. And as I said, I, w- I was in those meetings, had a seat at the table, and I was able to, when appropriate, provide my medical perspective on, on those issues. So that was just to, to, be, to say you had an, uh, the opportunity to have those type of experience, I thought was, was fantastic. The other thing is we would get on a, on, on a regular basis the latest uh, operations and intel briefs uh, to the chairman. As things are happening, even before the major media networks would, would report on it, we were hearing about it firsthand. So, I, so when people ask me, well, what do you do? I, I would describe, and I say, it's also like being a fellow in national security because I was, I was hearing uh, national security policy sort of being made from, from a military perspective by the chairman and his and his three-star line staff. So that was that was fantastic. So what what is what's the type of background that one would need to be to be a, a joint staff surgeon? I would say, you know, well, the obvious criteria is it's it's usually a one or two star a flag off flag or general officer of the medical department, Army, Navy, or, or Air Force. But I think real important that as I said before, your credibility as a physician will be at the highest level of your of the training that you had and do well in it when you were in clinical medicine. Understand operational medicine. You really have to understand operational medicine. And I think you have to understand the joint world. 
because again, it's, it's, it's the joint staff. You have to understand it's a different mindset because it's all about supporting the joint force, not your service, whether or not it's Navy, Army, Air Force. It's about the joint force. No longer are you, no one is a, on the joint staff is a proponent for their individual service. It's, it's for the joint force. So that, I would say that would be the three main criteria to be considered as a nominee for, for joint staff surgeon. So here you are, you're in the Pentagon and you've made it to the inner circle of the Pentagon. You must have some very memorable experiences, a little behind the scenes look of a story or two that perhaps you could share with us. Well, the best stories, unfortunately, are probably all classified. That's what I checked. Uh, even though I'd love to tell them, I probably can't because probably, the topics that were being discussed are probably still, still classified. But I'll, I'll share with, with you something that I didn't know about. So when the Joint Chiefs meet with the chairman, as the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so as the chairman and the service chiefs, or if the chairman has to have a meeting with the Secretary of Defense or with the president, with the service chiefs and the combatant commanders, all of the command commanders, there is a place they call the tank in which that's done. So when I first heard about the tank and what went on in the tank, I had this vision. I'm going to date myself. There was a movie, I think, from the 1960s, late 1960s, called Dr. Strangelove, a Peter Sellers movie. And it had to do with the potential for nuclear war with former Soviet Union. But in Dr. Strangelove, there was this super secret conference room that the president went to with all the service chiefs. And I said, oh, the tank must be like that. Must be in the basement of the, of the, of the Pentagon somewhere, real deep, nuclear weapon hardened, that kind of stuff. And it's a, and it's a big room with all these maps of the world and, and things like that and displays of where all the strategic forces are, are located. And, and so that the president or Secretary of Defense could be briefed and get the COCOM commanders to weigh in. And I thought it was, wow, this, this must be a pretty neat place where the chairman does all these type of meetings. Well, it turns out the tank is not located you know, in the bowels of the Pentagon, not in some basement. It's actually a standard conference room with a lot of video telecommunications screens, but it's a regular conference room on the E-ring of the Pentagon. It's just, it's just like, like that. Now, it's a scarce, and you have to have lots of security to get in it. But when you look on, I get in the, in the, in the tank, but it's, it's a regular conference room, not some sort of secret, secret place. So that, that so was... I think you, uh, go ahead. I think you let the secret out now, because they want, they want it to sound cool, like it's a tank that's a somewhere hardened facility, but now it's just a conference room. Yeah. I'm just glad they have the same government-issued chair that I do. You know, they are, the chairs are a little nicer, more nice and padded. Yeah, one of the things that we've seen recently is this COVID pandemic, and I'm sure the the joint staff surgeon was very busy because they're looking for medical advice. When you were in that position, were there any medical emergencies where, let's say, the people in the tank are kind of looking at you, saying, "What, what, what do you think?" 
Yeah, so my, my successor, General Friedrichs, he had a real medical crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic that put medical at the forefront of you know, the daily, daily battle rhythm for the entire military. And COVID probably was one of the leading topics that was discussed. And I'm sure they had several tank meetings over COVID-19. And he and his staff, I'm sure, worked very long hours like everyone was doing. I fortunately did not have that type of crisis, but probably the one medical thing that I had to, on a regular basis, brief the senior leadership, whether I was the chairman, vice chairman, or the director of the joint staff, was actually the NDA 2017 law that Congress passed to transfer all of the MTS from the services over to the DHA. Well, that process probably you know, took longer than perhaps the members of Congress thought it would take. And even though the chairman, uh, he was a former service chief in the Marine Corps, but he, that, that was not his role. And he didn't have direct, I don't want to use the term interest, but it wasn't one of his things that was on his plate directly, that because what was going on, the MTS did and, and could affect the joint force, he had an interest in it, but not as intimately, let's say, as a service chief would. And, and I could get briefings from the service certain generals. But on a regular basis, I need to provide the updates to the senior leadership on the joint staff and on what was going on with the discussions. You know, with the, among the, the certain generals, director of the DHA and health affairs on how the military health system was going to execute NDA 17. So that was something on a regular basis that I would brace. They never went to the tank, although there were several times that my staff and I thought that maybe we need to bring this up to the staff, to the tank, level of the tank discussion so that we could get, in my opinion, better movement on, on the way forward on that. That we, I never got to that. After your retirement, you joined the Uniformed Services University as senior advisor and scholar in residence for the Center for Global Health Engagement. How would you say that USUS is preparing individuals for global health engagement, and why is it important? Yeah, USU um, is involved in helping, I would say help, prepare military officers and medical officers in, in, in global health engagement. Obviously, uh, the services have a primary responsibility for that. I would say the Air Force has a great program for doing that, and, and, and as well as the Navy have an actual pipeline, let's say, to develop officers who have the skill sets in, in GHE. Uh, US health, USU supports that effort. There are I think right now, two courses ongoing. That's the Center for Global Health Engagement, which is at USU, provides on a regular basis a in-person as well as a virtual one to two week course on global health engagement. And I was involved in that, obviously tapping into my experience when I was a PACOM surgeon, because that was I would say up to 85% of my time at the time was involved in developing those relationships with all of my counterparts in the militaries in Asia. And a lot of that centered on, on, on global health attack and engagements. So CGAG has, has that course. 
And then the USC's Department of Preventive Medicine and Public Health has a master's degree program. It's called MHAP, M-H-A-P, in which, and I've actually helped provide lectures for that master's program that focuses on GHE. The other thing that the Center for Global Health Engagement does, which is primary, is, is, is providing a direct support to the COCOMs in, in GOG, in particular, HACOM, SOUTHCOM, AFRICOM, UCOM, and CENCOM. Those, those COCOMs have tapped the resources at the Center for Global Health Engagement to help them for a variety of, of, of means to support their GHG efforts. And, and I would say that GHG is, it's, it's, I think it's very important uh, for a command, command commander as they try to execute their theater security strategy, theater you know, cooperation program. Uh, military medicine through GHG is, is a main player in that effort to build relationships with our allies and partners throughout the globe to counter some of the efforts along the same lines that China is doing. You know, the soft power does work. And I would say two examples, I think, were, is, is very, very effective that I experienced when I was at PACOM. One was the uh, your country of Burma or Myanmar, that U.S. government refers to as Burma. Now, that is a country in which we have not had a military-to-military relationship because of the Leahy Act. The Leahy Act restricts or forbids a mill-to-mill engagements with any country in which its military has engaged in human rights abuses, which the military that Burma has. But in 2016, there was going to be a democratic election in Burma, and our U.S. ambassador was saying that. He was very confident that it was going to occur and that there would be a democratic government in Burma. And he saw that as an opportunity to establish, reestablish ties between the U.S. military and the Burmese military. And he thought that medicine would be the way to do it because medicine is considered very safe. And so he had me come out to the U.S. Embassy in Burma. I met with his health team and we thought of ideas and ways that we, if, if there was a free and fair election, a democratic government, that we could engage with the approval of Congress to engage with Bur- the Burmese military. So that's one example of, of how GHE can open doors that previously has been closed. And the other, along the same line, I'll use Vietnam as an example. Of course, everyone knows in the 60s and 70s, we were at war with Vietnam, Vietnam devastating for both countries, long memories on both sides. But I thought it was significant in, I think, 2016, our U.S. carrier strike group did a port call, port visit to denying Vietnam. Remember, back in the the peak of the Vietnam War, we were sending bombing missions from U.S. aircraft carriers to bomb all over North Vietnam. So to have the carrier strike group go visit, that history I thought was significant. And here's where military medicine comes into play, GAG. We spent 15 years building a relationship through GAG with our Vietnamese military medicine colleagues. 10 to 15 years of visits 
on an annual basis of the US, USNS Mercy, the Pacific Partnership, or the Air Force with the Pacific Angel, helping the Vietnamese military, the medical aspects of the Vietnamese military. They're very appreciative of it. We built over those 10, 15 years, we built trust such that the Vietnamese military felt comfortable with allowing a U.S. carrier strike group to come visit them. And I had that my thought confirmed when I talked to the Joint Staff at J-5 about that. He said, absolutely, Doc. But what you guys did at GAG really helped pave the way to make that happen. So two examples, in my opinion, of why I think GAG is very important and, and, how, and why I think there's a, there's a future role for military GAG. So when you think about GAG, what do you think are the ways in which people can sort of set their left and right boundaries as far as what they're going to do when it comes to medically providing care? Because you don't want to extend yourself too much to where you're potentially practicing outside your scope of care, but in a limited resource environment, you also encounter a lot of situations that you may not come across, say, in the United States. And so you're, to some degree, forced to work outside your normal clinical practice. That's something that we discuss, we debate among ourselves. It's actually, it's one of the topics brought up in the Global Health Engagement course. And a lot of it has to do with surgical care. Because you think about, you know, we're going to go to a third world country that does not have the latest and greatest when it comes to medicines that's available to them or surgical procedures that's available to them or, most importantly, the post-surgical care that may be available to them, especially if we do procedures and we're not like a USAID that can stay or the State Department that will stay long term. You know, military GHE and all our military engagements is not to be there for a long time. We'll go there, do what we can, help build the capacity building efforts that we do. But then we're eventually, we're going to leave. And that's something you always got to keep in the back of your mind when it comes to providing medical care, that you do not bring, introduce something or bring something in that the host nation can't sustain or can't deal with the consequences of what you did. So that's something that's just discussed. And we raise that awareness of the people who go over who are going to provide care, that they make sure they understand that so they don't bring in things that, you know, we sort of take for granted if you're practicing here in the United States where all that's available, but in some of these countries it's not. So you have to be very, very careful. As far as practicing outside the scope of care, even outside of GHE, sometimes that's going to be an issue. Think about it in a very austere environment in which you're, you're it. You got a patient who, if you don't do a certain procedure, he or she may die. But are you credentialed that? Maybe you know how to do it, but are you credentialed? So that's a thing that's currently at times may be an issue. And think about a, a potential future conflict in which we don't have all domain superiority, which we're going to have prolonged field care. So now you're going to have maybe an independent duty corpsman going to have patients for hours to days at a time, whereas in the past, they were gone. They were medevaced pretty much immediately. We may, we may not have that luxury anymore. So what are we going to be asking our, our medics and corpsmen of the future? In a, in a prolonged care environment, on a day, can we do we having to do things like they did back in World War II? You talk, you hear the stories, or they're true. Uh, 
Navy corpsman in a submarine doing an appendectomy. Okay, so that, that type of scenario may, may surface again. So we have to think it through. Well, you certainly had a very interesting career and had multiple different hats to wear. When the history books are written 50 to 100 years from now, what would you want to be written there? What would you want people to remember your legacy in military medicine? Yeah, it's, and it's not going to be a legacy of something he did or anything like that or a position he had. I, I think for me, me personally, and you would say, yeah, that's it, is that I'd be remembered as someone who was open, honest, and accessible. I, I think that is my reputation, that I was always approachable, no matter who you were or what you did. I never say no if someone is seeking my advice or wants to get into a mentor-mentee relationship, I, I will always say yes, because I'll always like helping people. I would have people come up to me who I had a, maybe a brief engagement when they were a junior enlisted or junior officer, that they would ask me a question or ask, or ask my advice, and I would you know spend the time and, and talk to them. They would come back, let's say, as an E-9, or 05 or 06, and say, and say, Admiral, you probably don't remember me, but I asked this question of you, you spent some time, and I always remember that, took your advice, and I just want to thank you. So I always tell, when I mentor people who, are, who I say are, are senior officers, I tell them, especially the flag officers I've mentored uh, that came behind me, is that for that junior person, Getting the opportunity to talk to a flag or general officer is a big deal. And you, as that flag or general officer, need to actually spend the time, look them in the eye, ask them a question the best you can, because it does mean a lot to those individuals, and it really could make a difference in their career. Maybe they stay, they stay in service because you spent the time. So that, that's sort of how I would, would be, want to be remembered as someone who is accessible, was open and honest, and, and always tried to do the right thing. We've been speaking with Dr. Colin Chin on Wardock's podcast. Sir, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Again, I really valued my time in service. To everyone who's listening, right, if you're thinking about joining the service, please consider it. And those who are serving or serving the future, thank you for your service too. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.